Great to see everyone. Good morning. My wife reminded me that the last time I actually was up here on a Sunday, it was her birthday. And uh, today is my son's birthday. So uh, if you see him, uh, he'd be very happy if you said something. And I do have a daughter, so I expect to be up here uh, one more time at least. Uh. There are two conversations that Jesus has in our gospel reading that are connected. The first conversation is with the Pharisees who come asking for a sign from heaven. The second conversation is with the disciples on the boat. And I am just saying now, if I was a disciple, I'd be very wary of getting anywhere near a boat with Jesus. (laughs) But they don't learn too quickly as we find out, right? I want to begin by talking about the tone of the second encounter. As it is, one of the more discomforting conversations, I think, that Jesus has with the disciples. This conversation begins with a warning and then ends with seven questions, most of them rhetorical questions, one after another fired at the disciples. I love how Eugene Peterson's translation captures the emotions in the gospel sometimes better. If I may be a little blunt here, captures a little bit of the crankiness of the text here. He says, why are you fussing because you forgot the bread? Don't you see the point of all this? Don't you get it at all? As I was reflecting on this passage, I felt like I needed to get past this intensity first. Now, yes, the disciples are, palm in the face, obtuse here. I mean, Jesus gives them a concerned word, warning them about falling for the soul-draining, outside-of-the-cup-polishing religiosity of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And you don't have to be a poetry major to get that he is speaking metaphorically, right? Especially in those times, leaven was, has this huge religious symbolic significance for the Jews, During Passover, the Jews were forbidden from using yeast in their bread to remember the haste with which their ancestors had to leave Egypt. They couldn't even wait for the bread to rise. That was the point, right? They couldn't even wait for the bread to rise. Unleavened bread, therefore, represents following God into the wilderness, while yeast represents the things that hold us back. So it would have been, I would think, Plainly obvious that Jesus meant something like, don't let the Pharisees' values, their priorities, keep you captive from following me. And what I am teaching you about what the kingdom of God is like, don't let that contaminate you. But somehow the disciples respond by saying, he is mad because we forgot the bread. Really, guys? Now, As dense as the disciples' response may be, this isn't Jesus just emotionally dumping. This frustration, I think, this too is love. Today's passage begins in earnest the last phase of his teaching ministry. In the very next section in chapter 8, he will ask that critical question of his disciples, who Do the people say that I am? And then he follows that up with, who do you say that I am? As the focus turns to his Christological identity, you can almost feel the shadow of the cross looming. 
The opposition is building. So that breathless movement that you have throughout Mark starts to take on now a sense of urgency. So this is where we are. And Jesus desperately wants to break through some walls here with the disciples, his friends. They have witnessed enough, so there should be some understanding, not everything, but some understanding by now. He wants to know, do you understand why I am doing this? Do you get me? Because it is possible to witness everything and still miss the point. People sometimes think if we just have the right information, the right evidence, the right signs, then we would be on our way to the truth. But that's not what always happens. I learned this lesson as a kid. When I was a kid, I used to get into a lot of fights. I know, surprising. I really meant that, uh, surprising. The summer I accepted Christ, it clicked for me that anger and violence was not the best way to go, especially in dealing with conflict, right? So, but there was this history. I came back and became a Christian, and I was excited about Jesus, but there was this history that I still had to deal with, specifically in the form of this neighborhood nemesis. I still remember his name, but I won't say it. And he wanted to finish this ongoing battle between him and I. And I told him I was sorry about starting the fight and that we should walk away in peace. And I went home. My best friend, Jason, came to me afterwards and said, all the kids in the neighborhood wanted to know why I, why I didn't want to fight. Why, why didn't you want to fight, Jen? I spent that entire summer talking with Jason about Jesus, so I knew when the kids asked him, why didn't Jen want to fight? I was kind of feeling good about what he might say. I thought he would say something like, you know, you know Jen became a Christian, or he had some sort of religious experience, at least something along that line. So I asked him, somewhat excited. So what did you tell him? What did you tell them? It turns out that he told the other kids that it was because I knew Kung Fu. <laughs> because my hands were lethal. <laughs> nothing about Jesus, nothing about my faith, Asian stereotype, from my best friend. It is possible to witness everything and still miss the real story. It is possible to have the right information, the right evidence, the right sign, and still be far from the truth. One of the effects of sin is that the default condition of the human heart is now a hardened heart, right? We need the right heart, the desire to see the truth. So we can see this in the text, that Jesus has no expectation of the Pharisees who come to test Jesus. They have hardened hearts. Jesus has no expectations for them to be able to perceive truth, so no signs will be meaningful to them, so no signs will be given to them. On the other hand, Jesus expects the disciples to understand, to perceive the truth in the healings, 
the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. So when they don't, he is concerned. This might mess a little with our Christology, but their slowness actually surprises Jesus. He really does experience all the human emotions. So now backing up a little bit, this is what is problematic about that request for a sign. As we mentioned, signs don't help us to see. Trusting in Jesus opens our eyes to see God's fingerprints, to see the signs in the world. Signs don't help us see, but seeing help us see the signs. But to request a sign, if you think about that, that presumes a reality, a different reality, a different story in which God is predominantly absent or distant, where God has to enter into the story through the signs to prove himself. And I was thinking this folly of chasing after signs is actually quite a relevant rebuke of much of, so much of our modern spirituality as well, because I get the sense that sometimes what passes for being spiritual feels like chasing after one sign after another, to be more focused on God's interruptions in history rather than growing in awareness of his presentness, what God is already up to in the world. Doing this skews our understanding of God and what we think is spiritual life. And I think of this a little bit to give you an illustration as a parallel to the problem that, when, that we often have when we see social media posts from some friends. Most of us know better, but I sometimes, I sometimes do get pulled into thinking that the incredible meal that my friend has and keeps on posting is what they eat all the time, right? What a life. And how all their kids only do these, uh, first of all, they're crazy cute all the time, and only do these cute things that are lovely things and they win awards all the time, and their spouses do and say the sweetest things. Of course, until they don't. But no one puts up posts, no one posts pictures of egg and toast breakfast or the Costco hot dog that they had for lunch, right? Or about that fight last night. To say, those moments, that's part of our life, but it's not the whole of our life. The moments that we post are not definitive of our reality, not of life. They are a part of it, not the definitive whole. We know this, and we ought to know better, but we still fall for it. Uh, fall for it. And I think this happens in our spiritual lives as well. And again, we know this, and we ought to know better. I have a dear friend. I love this friend, he's, he's been such a precious gift to me. And he loves to post online praise reports of how he needed a certain amount of money or needed a car to use or a place to stay. And God, in his goodness, answered this prayer in that exact way. I love this, and I love this friend. But I have to confess to you that when I read those posts, there is a part of me that gets me, I start thinking, this is sort of like the leaven that Jesus is talking about, that I start thinking, what's wrong with my life? When was the last time? It's been a few years since I received the check for the exact amount that I needed, right? I start thinking these things about my spiritual life. Oh, 
I need to do better, don't I? God forbid I discourage people from thanking God for the miraculous acts of his grace in our lives, but these miraculous moments are not the defining characteristics of the reality that we are called to live in. They are part of the overarching reality. But they are not, I think, the most important. Rather, the defining character of our reality is that our God is present, is good, and is Lord even when we don't get that job or get accepted into that school or lose the game or get that bad medical report. The problem of the Pharisees, the problem of the spirituality that demands a sign on all terms is that it reduces God into these moments. So the question that I have been asking is, how am I cultivating a softened heart? To be able to seek God's presence in all things rather than see him in isolated moments at church or in miracles or in what I might limit as holy moments. I think this is why central to so many spiritual disciplines is to cultivate a softened heart, to see the presence of God already work in our lives, in our world, and that what we first need to address is not a prayer for more things to happen, but a prayer to see God in more things. I think it's a wonderful blessing for us to be part of a church that focuses on that and understands the miraculous, beautiful ways in which God surprises us and yet at the same time seeks always to find God present ahead of us. The ministry of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, they are not about his power, about how he can perform miracles. He does them, but at their core, these things are him describing the nature of the kingdom of God, the nature of what it means to live in God's rule, the nature of God himself. The miracle of the five loaves and two fish, the miracle of the seven loaves, are stories whose main point is not about Jesus' power, no more than a parent providing a meal for their children is about their financial prowess. It is a story about the nature of the universe, the nature of the good God who cares for us, who is abundant, loving, faithful, and sufficient for all of our desires. When the pressure comes, how will we respond? Do we understand this? I think this is what Jesus is desperate for us to know. These are 
two very different approaches, two very different understandings of what a sign is. I want to close this message today by referencing an image that we have been drawing on to contrast the spiritual world that we often fall for, even now, versus the reality that Jesus offers. There was actually one more Old Testament reference in Jesus' conversation other than the leaven that might not be as obvious to us, but probably would have been plain to the disciples. When Jesus asks, do you have eyes but can't see, have ears but can't hear, it is actually more than a clever put down. It was a direct quote from Jeremiah. And I think it may have reminded people of the time of Jeremiah when the people of God were captive to a false god, looking the other way to immorality, injustice, and idolatry, all because they were more concerned about protecting their position in life, their welfare, their needs. No one chooses to say, I am going to worship a false god. No one does that consciously. We all drift into it somehow. Jeremiah understands this, and he would prophetically speak into this. And at one point, he illustrated this vividly by walking around with a wooden oxen yoke. You think you're free. You think you're doing fine. But you are captive. You are a slave to a false god, to a false religious system, a false reality. Jesus, of course, would take this image of the yoke and give us this offer. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, heavy yoked, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the offer. This is, I think, what Jesus is so desperate for us to know.